What Makes a Killer contains graphic details of sexual assault and violence and is not intended for all audiences. Listener discretion is strongly advised. July 5, 1998. Irene Silverman, an 82-year-old New York socialite, was viciously assaulted in her home before being tasered and finally strangled. Her killers? 23-year-old Kenny Kimes and his 63-year-old mother, Sante. They thought they were untouchable. They thought they were smarter than everyone else, especially Sante. Kenny physically did it, but she gave the orders. Make no mistake about it. The Kimes were linked to crimes in five separate states, leaving behind a trail of fraud and suspected murder. By pure chance... A sting operation to apprehend the mother-son duo was already underway at a nearby hotel, the same day as Irene's murder. Sante was a con artist who would stop at nothing to keep her crimes under wraps. Over a period of two years, she coerced her son Kenny into committing three murders. She transformed him into a really evil person like her. She was like a black widow, and he became that way too. Most of her victims were obstacles, as far as she was concerned, that needed to be got out of the way. There was something innately evil about her. Sante Kimes was a master of disguise, fooling victims across the U.S. during her outlandish 43-year crime spree. She used her powers of persuasion to crash parties with the rich and famous. Among them, former Vice President Gerald Ford. She had at least 22 aliases, all kinds of different social security numbers, all kinds of different passports. She was a million faces. She lies so relentlessly to everyone. It's a complete construct. Even their own family was wary of the duo. She knew how to make you feel like the most important person in the world. It was fun. Everyone loved her. She was the life of the party. Mom has always been dangerous. But when Kenny became her partner, she became really dangerous. This is What Makes a Killer, a series that chronicles the lives and crimes of the world's most notorious killers. I'm your host, Jennifer Natoso. In every episode, we'll trace a killer's origins, examine their behavior, and follow their path to bloodshed. In this episode, we'll discuss Sante and Kenny Kimes. Sante Kimes was born Sandra Singers on July 24, 1934, in Oklahoma City. The Great Depression gripped America and led to a global economic crisis. And thanks to a severe drought in the southern U.S., families like Sante's, who relied on agriculture, were finding it difficult to survive. Criminologist Dr. Elizabeth Yardley and Sante's eldest son, Kent Walker, share more. There's a lot of poverty in society at this point in time. And this is something that she will always be very conscious of throughout her life. She came from quite a poor background. Her father was East Indian, her mother was a Dutch migrant, and it's said that she experienced quite a lot of racism. But it's very difficult to know what's true and what's fabrication, because this woman was good at creating histories that didn't exist. Somehow they ended up in Los Angeles, and her father, my grandfather, was kind of a con artist, too, from what we can think of now. 
He left my grandmother on the streets in L.A., basically, basically homeless, as far as we know. It was tough. Journalist John Marquis details Sante's survival strategy. Shaunti used to steal from food stores. She was very conscious early on of the huge disparity in wealth between people like her and people like the Hollywood set. And so she became very conscious early on of the need to achieve some kind of material wealth. And of course, she became obsessed by it. Desperate to escape poverty, 13-year-old Sante got a lucky break. A Los Angeles theater owner took a shine to the young girl and arranged for their childless sister to adopt Sante. The story goes that actually her mother and her sister were quite happy to wave her off because she was quite a handful. And I think with this new mum and dad, she would have been doted on. I think any kind of narcissism that was developing in her would have been exacerbated even more. Now living in Nevada, her adopted father had a high-paying job in the Army. Sante was intent on improving her academic performance so she could move up the social scale. She was terrified of being poor. She was scarred by her childhood. She's been described as quite pushy, quite overbearing. And it's said that she had only one female friend during her school days. And this female friend was somebody who really looked up to her. And this is quite significant for me, because when you have a case of somebody who is a narcissist, you often have a codependent. Sante made the decision to return to California, where she enrolled in a college program for journalism with her friend Ruth. It was in Santa Barbara where Sante first tried her hand at fraud, using the name of Ruth's future father-in-law, Bruce. Bruce started getting all these bills. And what mom had done is gone down to the local department store and charged thousands of dollars to his name for makeup, perfumes, clothes, and stuff like that. And that was the first thing that I know of that made mom start to show what she really was. On May 9, 1956, a 21-year-old Sante decided to marry her boyfriend, Lee. Sante only stayed married for about a year before filing for divorce after her husband was offered a low-paying teaching position. She was physically quite attractive, but she was very much a parasite. Um, she would hook on to particular men, get what she wanted, and then she would just abandon them. Sante was focused on finding the next man who could help her advance in the world. On November 9th, 1957, just a few months after her first marriage came to an end, she wed Ed Walker, an old flame from high school. My dad was kind of like that puppy. My dad was completely enamored with her. He was his entire life. Author and journalist Jeffrey Wansel discusses Sante's desire to exude wealth. She wanted him to, quotes, better himself so that she could be better too. She spent extravagantly. I mean, she would spend $13,000 one Christmas on Christmas presents. He couldn't afford that. There was no way that in the end, it wouldn't drive Ed to distraction. Sante reinvented herself, dropping her given name Sandra in favor of something more exotic. Mom's name changed several times throughout her life. She started off as Sandy, and then she decided she wanted to be kind of French. Somewhere along the lines, it turned into Santee, and then she went to 
Sante. When their son Kent was born in 1962, Sante was thrust into a whole new position as a mother. But even that didn't keep her from grifting. She treated me like a king or prince and, and made me feel like the most important person in the world, you know, and her love was fierce. You know, so when you saw the bad stuff, well, I don't know, maybe other families like that. So I, I didn't know. It's all that I knew. The marriage was showing signs of strain soon after Kent arrived, and Sante had a run of extramarital encounters. With her spending sky high, she resorted to new ways of funding her lifestyle, making fraudulent insurance claims through arson. One of my earliest memories, we pull up the driveway and there's fire engines all over the place and stuff. The house had burned to the ground. And I think that was the third or fourth fire. It pretty much destroyed my father. I mean, everything that he would do was successful, but she found a way to destroy it. With numerous mysterious fires connected to her name, local police gave Sante a moniker, Dragon Lady. What a wonderful scheme. You just keep on setting fire to places, you claim the insurance, you make more money. She knew exactly what she was doing and why she was doing it. The now 32-year-old mother would continue down a corrupt path to chase the millions she desperately desired through another racket. Mom always stole. I mean, there, there was always shoplifting involved. I mean, I was her little helper. I didn't know, you know I was a kid. I'm, a, I'm not trying to make an excuse, but it's all I knew. In 1966, she was arrested three times in a, in a five-day period. She had no concept of right or wrong. Sante had obtained credit cards using several fake aliases, which authorities discovered when they searched her home. She faced 17 charges of grand theft, but thanks to legal help provided by one of her boyfriends, she walked away with nothing more than a petty fine. Meanwhile, the affairs continued. It was the last straw for her husband, Ed. I remember there was this huge argument, and Mom was going crazy, and, and she actually threw a knife at him, and I, I saw it stick in his arm. There's times when he walked in the house and saw her in someone else's embraces. My parents divorced. He was a broken man, and he never fully recovered. Sante's criminal activity escalated. On the rare occasion she was caught, she'd resort to whatever means necessary to escape, even exploiting her own seven-year-old son. Not too long after mom and dad split, I was sitting on the hood of the car. Mom came running out of the dress shop. This lady was chasing her, and she said, get in the car, get in the car. The lady came up and actually grabbed mom's arm. You're shoplifting, we saw you put that dress in that bag. So what mom did is she stood up for a minute, she didn't say a word, and she clenched her fist and roundhouses me and gets me right in the lip, split my lip wide open. I still have the scar. Cops got there, and Mom starts screaming, this bitch hit my son, this bitch hit my son. Sante, now single, was more determined than ever to climb the social ladder. To do this, she knew she had to marry into wealth. We call those years Mom's search for a millionaire. I think we were broke. I mean, we were living in a nice house and stuff, but the refrigerator was bare. I mean, I grew up on peanut butter and jelly sandwiches for a while. She'd give me lectures for hours and hours. Marry for money. You don't want to be broke. You know, that, that was her mantra. Sante would use her looks to find herself her millionaire man. My mother had a striking resemblance to Elizabeth Taylor, and she played it to the help. She was always made up, big black wig and stuff like that. 
men were attracted to her. And she was the type of woman that she walked into a room, she got everyone's attention. Everyone's. Before long, she set her sights on 52-year-old Ken Kimes, a multi-million dollar property developer who'd struck it rich by building a chain of motels across the U.S. He was 16 years older than Sante. She's very manipulative in how she goes about landing him. So she finds out that his favorite color is white, so she wears white all the time. She finds out that he likes gardenias, the flower, so she has a perfume that smells of those flowers. So she's doing everything that she can to appear very alluring to this man. Ken was rather flattered. A friend, I think, warned him at one point, she's not up to much, you know, she's got a very dodgy record, but Ken didn't mind. She became more and more controlling, and Ken Kimes fell into her web. People regarded him as goofy. He was a man who, in spite of his relative success, was obviously very unsure of himself. What the Kimes family didn't have that they really wanted was high-level status. Sante preyed on Ken's insecurities and cemented her role as his lover by creating something that would boost his ego. She invented a fictitious role for him as an ambassador. Sante conned their way into a reception at the U.S. presidential guest house in Washington, D.C. They're photographed with Vice President Gerald Ford, and then they go on to crash another three parties at other embassies. Only she could have got away with it. In spite of her many talents, Ken seemed unwilling to commit to marriage. This hesitancy worried Sante. How would she scam his millions? Ken had children from a prior marriage, so she faced competition. She disdainfully referred to them as the creeps. They see her as a predatory gold digger, so it's going to be quite difficult for, for her to actually get access to Ken's money. What's the best way to get to somebody's money? Well, it's to create an heir. On March 24, 1975, Ken and Sante welcomed a son, Kenneth Kareem Kimes, better known as Kenny. He was isolated by Sante as he grew up. She hired home tutors to avoid sending him to school. Kenny Kimes' early years would have been when he was completely enmeshed with his mother. Kenny almost becomes an extension of her, and there's very much a codependent relationship that emerges. So his existence, his identity, is very much premised on hers. Kenny was the golden child. I loved him. I mean, he was a great little brother. We played and stuff. He was a great kid. On July 12, 1985, 10-year-old Kenny witnessed his parents getting arrested. Sante had been trafficking young Mexican girls across the border and enslaving them in her home. Several had escaped, accusing Sante of extreme physical abuse. One of her so-called maids said she was attacked with an iron. It became obvious that something much more dangerous and criminal was going on behind the facade of respectability and money. Rather sad, Ken Kimes, who was not young, gets charged with 15 counts of slavery. He did a deal with the prosecutors. He got a three-year suspended prison sentence. Sante was sentenced to five years in jail. For the first time, young Kenny was free from his mother's influence and got to experience a normal life. 
he was allowed to attend school and make friends. But by December 1989, after serving three years, Sante was released from jail and was quick to rein Kenny back in. The coercively controlling behavior becomes much more focused. She gets him to leave school. If anything, it's even worse than it was before. And it's at that point where the Kenny that grew up with me that I loved and was fun to be with, rather the potential to being a good person, started to shift. And his disappointment and his anger and his rage was relentless. He was out of control. At 16 years old, Kenny ran away from home. Sante sent his older brother Kent to stop him. Got Kenny back home. And uh, his attitude did not get better. He's still in the rages and stuff. But he did stay. You know, I thought I was doing the right thing, but, uh, you know, I'll wonder every day if, uh, if I let him go. What would things be like today? Sante and Ken had homes in various states, as well as Nassau in the Bahamas. The illusion was a life of luxury and distinction, but in actuality, everything had become extremely stressful for 77-year-old Ken as a result of Sante's compulsive grifting. Then suddenly, on March 28, 1994, Ken died from an aneurysm. Now, Sante has another problem. She doesn't want the creeps from his first marriage to get any of the money that there is in the estate. Nobody's told that he's died. She doesn't allow there to be a full autopsy. It's a very quick cremation. Ken had died March 28th. Kenny did not find out about it until uh, June. And what had happened is mom convinced me not to tell Kenny. Not until no one knew. I'm so ashamed of myself that she's able to manipulate me to do that. Shante kept Ken financially alive for some time after his death by using his credit cards and trying to access his accounts. Soon, questions were being asked by an executive at Ken's offshore bank, Gulf Union. 55-year-old Syed Belal Ahmed was concerned about the flurry of faxes requesting money transfers by his client, Ken Kimes. He turned up in the Bahamas to investigate irregularities in Ken Senior's accounts. And of course, Chante immediately recognized that he was an obstacle that needed to be removed. On September 4, 1996, Sante and her son Kenny wined and dined the bank investigator at their favorite Nassau restaurant. They eventually invited him back for coffee to the house. And that's when they fed the date rape drug into his drink, got him into a dozy state, and drowned him in the bath. The two of them took it in turns to hold him under the water. 21-year-old Kenny was now fully committed to Sante's nefarious ways by helping her carry out murder. As far as the police are concerned, he's simply a missing person. Yes, of course, the last two people to see Saeed alive are Sante and Kenny, but there is no 
blood evidence. There is nothing. Sante and Kenny eluded capture in the Bahamas and made their way to Florida before anyone could accuse them of being involved. Apparently, they got a motorhome and they went zigzagged across the states. The mother-son duo embarked on a Bonnie and Clyde-style shoplifting crime spree until Sante was apprehended on May 19, 1997. Kenny was detained for the first time after punching a police officer to free his mother. The 22-year-old called his brother, Kent. I'm in jail. I was relieved. I was thankful for it. Maybe this is one thing that got him to stay straight, you know, get him back on the right track, let him lose consequences. That didn't happen. Kenny was viewed by prosecutors as a first-time offender and, as such, received leniency. This teaches Kenny a very important lesson, that actually you can break the law and you can get away with it and there will be no consequences for you. So this is something that is incredibly important. By now... Sante's late husband's millions had been depleted, and what remained was mostly tied up in property. Penniless, Sante and Kenny showed up at the door of Sante's oldest son, Kent. It started to be more mom and Kenny against me. They were becoming a team that just didn't feel right. But one time I walk into my office and mom and Kenny sitting there behind my desk going through my drawers. I said, what the hell do you think you're doing? Mom and Kenny were getting tighter and tighter, and I was becoming the outsider. The two criminals eventually fled, but not before planning their next con. Years prior, Sante and her husband, Ken, transferred the deeds to their Las Vegas home to a family friend, David Kasdan, to avoid it being seized in a legal dispute. David Kasdan was a 63-year-old New Yorker who had helped them out of a jam he pretended to own it. At the same time, they got him to sign a quit claim so that if ever they wanted it back again, they could get it back at once. In January 1998, Sante used the property as collateral to borrow $280,000 in David's name. David soon discovered by mail that he had a new mortgage. And then David found out that the house had burned down. The insurance companies were not going to cover it because they knew it was arson. David reported the fraud to the bank and it turned out Sante Kimes was behind it. Well, Shante's reaction to the David problem was the usual one, which was to uh, remove the obstacle. Kenny, of course, knew immediately that that would be his job. On March 13th, Kenny and an accomplice, a drifter named Sean, drove to Los Angeles and paid a visit to David's home. Sean waited outside while Kenny knocked on the door. David welcomed him into his house and said, would you like a coffee? And went off to make coffee, at which point Kenny took a revolver, put it at the back of David's neck and fired. He was dead before he hit the floor. Kenny returned to the accomplice and together they loaded him into the back of David's own green Jaguar. They dumped David's body in a dumpster in an alley. It wasn't very long before he was discovered among the prime suspects in his murder were Sante and Kenny. I mean, one of the really strange things about the David Kasdan murder is the absolute detachment that Kenny showed in actually uh, doing the deed because this person was not someone unknown to him. He was someone very well known to him. But what happened next was even more astonishing. 
He sends flowers to his mother. It's almost as if this is celebratory. This is a, an act of approval seeking. It's like, hey, mum, look what I did for you. And this really reinforces how strong that codependency was between this narcissist and her number two. Instead of keeping a low profile, Sante was back to her old tricks. Two weeks prior to David's murder, Sante purchased a car with a forged check. Warrants were soon issued for Sante's and Kenny's arrests. Now, they were on the hook for two murders and fraud. Sante and Kenny took off in the stolen car. 2,800 miles later, they were in New York City, where they conjured up their next money-making scam. Sante had been researching nice, comfortable uh, apartments in New York, and she'd come across an 82-year-old widow, Irene Silverman who had a house in East 65th Street in Manhattan, which she'd converted into really very comfortable suites. This was a lady who was worth a lot of money. Property on the Upper East Side in the Central Park area is very, very expensive in the tens of millions of, of dollars. And Sante wanted a piece of this. Sante concocted another fake alias, Manny Guerin, who was looking for an apartment. This time, her criminal protege, her now 23-year-old son, Kenny, would take center stage. Now, normally, Irene likes very good references, but Kenny plays the classic con. I'll give you the $6,000 now. The implication being, if you don't ask too many questions. It takes less than 24 hours for him to place a bug in her apartment so that he and his mother can listen in to her telephone conversation they want, by one hook or crook, to get her to sign over the mansion to them. Initially, Irene was skeptical. Irene Silverman was an incredibly smart woman. She noticed that he was able to evade the security cameras around the building. He kind of crept around and, and she knew that he stood behind his door looking out through the peephole because she could see his feet underneath the door. She told people that she didn't like this guy. After buying a copy of the deed to the Manhattan mansion, Sante used her skills as a forger to fake Irene's signature on a transfer. The con began to take on full force. Sante dresses up as Irene to convince the clerk to notarize the document. The property was signed over to a corporation created by Sante. After obtaining the necessary documents, the only obstacle they faced was Irene. On July 5, 1998, Kenny pounced. He dragged the 82-year-old landlady into his apartment. Sante tasers her, rendering the poor woman utterly helpless. Kenny, ever keen to do his mother's bidding, strangles her. It was an act of the most grotesque malevolence, but yet further evidence of the extraordinary bond between mother and son. Hoping to make mom proud, 23-year-old Kenny hid Irene's five-foot body inside a duffel bag and drove it to Hoboken, New Jersey, where he dumped her in a trash bin. Their outlandish plan for Sante to fill the elderly millionaire's shoes was coming together. July 5th, 1998, New York City. 
63-year-old Sante and 23-year-old Kenny Kimes now have three murders to their name. They'd killed 82-year-old Irene Silverman so they could take possession of her multi-million dollar Manhattan mansion. Sante and Kenny decided to celebrate their latest accomplishment. They take themselves off to Trump Tower to have pastries and coffee. Kenny at one point reminisced and said, these are the hands that have just been round the neck of Irene, and now they're round a cup of coffee. Criminologist Dr. Elizabeth Yardley discusses how the New York socialite's disappearance was completely out of character. She'd just completely gone off the radar. People were very quick to notice that. It was only a matter of hours that went by before somebody reported her missing to the police. Former NYPD detective Tom Hovigam was alerted by one of his patrolling officers. Phone rang. I picked it up and I had a patrol officer on the other end. The officer said that uh, the staff was pretty insistent that uh, she would never leave the townhouse and she had difficulty walking. And if she did leave, she wouldn't leave uh, by herself. So then it started to raise my suspicion a little bit more than the average missing person call. When he arrived at Irene's home, Detective Hovigan was told about one of her new tenants, Manny Guerin, the alias of Kenny Kimes, who began acting strangely. She knew something was not right with this guy. Irene made notes in regards to Kenny's behavior at the time and drawings and even said that he looks like jail. Meanwhile, a joint task force of the LAPD and FBI were pursuing the Kimes for check fraud and as prime suspects for the murder of David Kasdan. They found a criminal associate of the Kimes, a man named Stanley, who had previously supplied them with illegal guns. Sante and Kenny were once again in contact with Stanley. They had called and said, uh, Stan, we want you to come out to New York. We have a beautiful townhouse that you're going to love. We're going to have you be the caretaker. We want you to change some locks in the place and get rid of everyone that's in the townhouse. The police and the FBI approached Stanley and say, if you help us pin down Sante and Kenny, whom they now clearly have a firm view are killers, we'll cut you a deal. By coincidence, on the very same day as Irene's murder, the task force had set up a sting to arrest the Kimes. Stan helps them lure Sente and Kenneth Kimes to this Hilton Hotel on 6th Avenue. One of the things he had to do to let the police know that they were there was tip his hat. The police were standing by, but there was no sign of Sante or Kenny. They finally arrived more than six hours later after dumping Irene's body. Stanley takes his hat off, which is a clue, so they're arrested. Sante, who is carrying a, a black bag at the time, throws the bag on the floor and says, this isn't mine. And then Kenny reacts by wetting himself, possibly the first time in their lives that they've been caught off guard. In Sante's bag, seven passports, five bank books, and numerous checks belonging to Irene. On Kenny, they found a forged social security card in Irene's name. The Kimes were taken into custody. I think Kenny must have been feeling incredibly alone, like a fish out of water at this point in time, because he's separated from his mum. He's always looking for her to tell him what to do next. So he's feeling like his normal has just been tipped upside down. At this point, the investigators hadn't realized the significance of the paperwork belonging to Irene Silverman. Then, the team investigating Irene's disappearance held a news conference. 
a detective heard the news conference early in the morning and he heard the name Irene Silverman. So then they immediately called up and said, hey, I think we have a couple of people here you might want to speak to. Now authorities knew that Kenny Kimes and the mysterious Manny Guerin were one and the same. Irene's staff identified Kenny as Manny and detectives obtained a search warrant for his apartment. When we went in, we found a shower curtain was missing. We found several wigs. We also uh, found a drug that is used to, they call it the date rape drug. It's used to knock people out. We also found papers with Irene Silverman's signature on it. Someone was practicing her signature. We found a to-do list written by Santa Kimes. Duct tape, rope, garbage bags. We were hoping Irene was still alive, but we had our doubts at that point. In a bag that they checked at the Plaza Hotel, we finally found the motive to forge deed to Irene Silverman's townhouse. It was a huge piece of evidence. Now that they had conclusively linked the Kimes to Irene Silverman, Detective Hovigam questioned 23-year-old Kenny. I was talking about poor Irene and her missing and how her staff misses her. And I was trying to play on his emotions, trying to get him to feel sorry for her. At one point, I thought I had him. He started to tear up, he started to slouch, and I thought, this is it, he's gonna spill. Then all of a sudden, in snap of a finger, he became stone cold. Rigid, sat up, stone cold, and said, I have no comment. That was it, he was done. Even though Irene's body was never found, on December 16th, 1998, at Manhattan Criminal Court, Sante and Kenny Kimes faced a total of 84 charges. Sante loved the attention. It was a media circus. She seized the chance for yet another performance. She went on 60 Minutes. She went on another news show and proclaimed her innocence. And it was so over the top. It just was ridiculous. Crying, carrying on. As God as my witness, we, we would never do anything like that. Why would we murder a sweet old woman? The prosecution was missing one crucial part of the case. Irene's body. We had a homicide without a body and all circumstantial evidence, but that circumstantial evidence was overwhelming. We had everything we needed. We just didn't have the body. I think we were all a bit nervous, but we knew we'd get a conviction. I mean, if you sat on a jury and listened to the presentation from the district attorney's office, without a, without a doubt, these two people killed Irene Silverman. Sante was finally convicted and sentenced to 120 years in prison. Kenny was given 125. We were ecstatic. The only downside is, is that we never found Irene. I still feel bad about that to this day. But we got a conviction, and that was amazing. But that's not where the narrative ends. A case was made against the mother and son for the murder of their second victim, David Kasdan, thanks to new evidence discovered during the hunt for Irene's remains. They were extradited to Los Angeles, where they could face the death penalty if found guilty. Kenny is desperate that his mother shouldn't face the death penalty. In March 2001, he is transferred to California. Kenny decides the only way he can save his mother is to turn against her. As part of a plea bargain, Kenny Kimes confessed to murdering Syed Belal Ahmed and David Kasdan. Both mother and son were sentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole. The sentencing judge in California 
described Sante as one of the most evil individuals that she had ever encountered in her years on the bench. And I think that phrase can be applied to both of them. They were both evil individuals. Almost 10 years later, on May 19, 2014, Sante Kimes died in prison. She was 79 years old. She denied everything right up until the bitter end. Her son Kenny, however, has recently shown some remorse. He understands, you know, what pain he caused people by taking away people he loved because he lost someone he loved and stuff. So I think Kenny finally gets it. Far too late. I have too much respect for the people who've been hurt by them to call him a victim. He is. That's why I hope he never gets out of prison. What Makes a Killer is an Audio Boom original series in production with Woodcut Media and hosted by me, Jennifer Natoso. This series is produced by Audio Boom's Blair Payton, Lauren Vogel, Pam Burrows, and Karen Bevan. Production for Woodcut provided by Beth Parks, Jenny Day, and Kula Anastasi. Original music by Ben Kregi. Executive producer for Woodcut is Kate Beal, and for Audio Boom are Brendan Regan and Stuart Last. On the next episode of What Makes a Killer, June 2010. The peaceful community of Whitehaven, located in northwest England, was about to be shattered by the murderous rampage of one man. This perfectly ordinary 52-year-old taxi driver had suddenly taken it into his head to shoot everybody in the area. Over the course of one day, Derek Bird would kill 12 people and injure 11 more. He picked people off who were just going about their their day-to-day lives, and it seemed to make absolutely no sense whatsoever. That was the worst day of my life. I wouldn't wish it on my worst enemy. The ruthless killer continued shooting until he ran out of rounds. And only then, as the police got close, did he turn the gun on himself. We have a man who had committed no substantial crime in his life, who in one moment transformed himself into a spree serial killer.